Hello and welcome to Elucidations, an unexpected philosophy podcast. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me today is Megan Sullivan, the Wilsey Family College Professor of Philosophy and Director of the Notre Dame Institute of Advanced Study, and Paul Blaschko, who is Assistant Teaching Professor of Philosophy at the University of Notre Dame and Director of the Shidi Family Program in Economics, Enterprise, and Society. And they are here to discuss The Good Life. Megan Sullivan and Paul Blaschko, welcome. Thank you so much for having us. We're excited to be here. Okay, so the good life isn't a phrase that's always on the tips of our tongues today. But I think nonetheless, despite that, we all have some idea of like, you know, hey, this is the kind of life I'd like to live. And this is the kind of life I'd not like to live. So how about I just take a stab at it? I'm going to say living the good life means making a decent amount of money, having a lot of career success, um, you know, falling in love, maybe having a family if that's your thing, maybe not, and like living for a long time. So is have I just totally nailed it right now and like we can just pack up and go home? Yeah, I mean, you're you're on the road. You're doing better than somebody who thinks the good life is uh, just watching Netflix endlessly and then, um, I don't know, quitting your job. <laughs> well, that's interesting. So I actually have a question about that. So like what if you're a cinephile or something and like you want to devote yourself to the study of great films? And now granted, Netflix has a somewhat limited selection, but I don't know what like maybe you're a cinephile and like your specialization or something is like contemporary Netflix shows like could you live a good life just like locked in a room all day and like doing whatever you do, you know, writing film criticism or whatnot? So there, there are a couple different approaches you can take as a philosopher to this meaning of life question. And also, you know, you feel so special. Like we wrote a book about the meaning of life. Yeah, I know. <laughs> With, that has answers. Everything's at stake here. here. Here are at least a couple camps you might fall into. One camp is pretty much any set of projects or non-projects that you adopt for yourself can be meaningful. Uh, and there aren't really better or worse ways to answer the question about whether you are leading a good life. Paul and I are not in that camp, and we don't think like many virtue ethicists are in that camp, but that is one approach, and if that's your approach, there are probably books that you can find that would help you out. There's one that just got published the same publication day as our Good Life Method book called The Sunny Nihilist, and I think this is the approach that that book takes. This is a good uh, time to mention that I completely forgot to plug your book. Megan Sullivan and Paul Blaschko have an awesome new book out called The Good Life Method, Reasoning Through the Big Questions of Happiness, Faith, and Meaning, and it's out now from Penguin Press. So anyway, where we were at was we were drawing a contrast between different approaches to thinking about what counts as a good life. And then um, so uh, there's like maybe a distinction we want to draw between people who have specific prescriptions about like, you know, if you want to do a really good job of like being a computer programmer, do X. If you want to do a really good job of being a of mixing concrete, do Y. But you're not in that business. Is that am I understanding that right? We're not. So one of the things that we aim to do in the book is to introduce readers to Aristotle's approach to the good life and show how he's inspired a bunch of other really phenomenal philosophers over the last 2,400 years. And this general approach that he founded and has since grown into virtue ethics is really useful for our 2022 lives. And this does require taking some substantive philosophical stands on what it even is to give people advice about the good life. So one camp is any life that anybody's leaving, living can be good or bad. It really just depends on the kind of subjective attitudes of the person that's living that life. 
uh, we reject that. We do think that there are better and worse versions of a human life. And one of the reasons why we read so many advice columns and listen to so many podcasts is because we're seeking out the truth about what's good for our lives. And we are not confident that that our own attitudes are trustworthy at any given time. It's something we want to learn about and grow in. Another camp is there are objective goals you should be shooting for, but they can be really specific. Like, I want to be the best tech entrepreneur on planet Earth, or I just want to be the best dad. Um, And picking a really specific goal or model of a life and really trying to orient all of your projects and activities towards that specific goal That's a way a lot of people, they don't quite put it in philosophical terms, but I do think a lot of people set their goals in that way. Like, this is the year I'm just going to be the best boss ever. Aristotle uh, considers ideas like that, but at the very opening of the Nicomachean Ethics says that for human beings, we're goal-directed, telic creatures, but we're pursuing a kind of complete good, something that realizes all of the best features of our function in a complete way. And so picking a really pointy goal, especially one that's time-bound, like being the best dad ever or the best boss ever or the best tech entrepreneur ever, is not big enough to encompass what a meaningful human life should amount to. So you have to get into a bunch of complicated virtue talk and, and look for a more complete goal. And to take that tech entrepreneur example, too, it seems really common for people to like put their all into making their startup work, um, but then in a relatively short amount of time, probably shorter than they expected, if it works out, it gets bought by a giant company, and then now they're rich, but then it's also like, now what? Now what do I do? I still have like half my life to live. So One of the, uh, one of the examples we consider in the book is uh, actually it comes from another philosopher, Kieran Satia. So he's got this book, Midlife, right? And uh, in it, he talks Kieran about- Kieran Satia, friend of the show. There you go. <laughs> He talks about, um, you know, kind of the hedonic treadmill, except uh, like in an even more expansive way, right? We set these goals, we achieve the goals, and we invest so much of ourselves and and our sort of search for meaning into those goals that we find ourselves disoriented once we've achieved them, right? It's kind of like the now what feeling that you described a second ago. Um, You know, one of our questions is, uh, like Megan said, like what what goals are big enough for a human life? What goals are going to be good in and of themselves and such that like when you achieve them, they continue to be satisfying? I think, you know, Satya is an interesting example because in that book, he talks about uh, how the sort of way out of the you know midlife crisis that he found himself in was to set uh, or not even to set more goals. It was more to find activities that were atelic, right? To find activities that you can enjoy in this kind of complete way Megan was talking about a second ago. Um, so if you think about that, like on a really large scale, you know, Aristotle is recommending something like contemplation as this sort of ultimate um, activity that we're supposed to be, you know, like preparing ourselves to be able to do. Um, and that's something that, you know, presumably would help us uh, you know, not be immune from burnout, you know, this sort of disorienting feeling once you achieve something. And uh, atelic is a fancy pants term for the thing I'm doing doesn't have a goal such that once I meet the goal, I'm done. Yeah, good, good, right? good. Yep, exactly. So the distinction is, you know, between activities like uh, running a marathon, trying to win the marathon, that's a telic goal, right? You've got this very concrete sort of this is what constitutes finishing it and winning and success. Atelic goals are, you know, things like you know, reading poetry or taking a hike in nature. You're not trying to just complete it or, or you know, achieve it. You don't achieve a hike. You sort of you go and you enter into it and then it's complete sort of as you go through it. Yeah, it's like even if you could read all the poems that were ever written in a human life, which obviously there's not enough time for that, 
it's not clear that even if you did, you wouldn't just like, well, maybe I'll start over and read a second time, you know, you know, right? It's not like it's clear that's ever done. Yeah. Read them yeah. faster. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Optimize poetry. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I think that's a, a helpful way of kind of distinguishing between good things or goals that we might have in life, right? The sort of things that we do try to just like achieve or succeed at and then things that are more like fulfilling, refreshing activities that you enter into. So, you know, one of the bits of advice that Aristotle gives us is, you know, make sure you're balancing those kinds of goods in your life. And in the book, we try to think in really concrete ways, like, okay, how do you actually do that? How do you identify the two different kinds of goods and then make sure that they're fitting into your life in the right sort of way? Okay, so you said the word balance. And of course, the first phrase that pops to mind there is work-life balance, uh, which is also one of the things you both write about. So what do you think about that issue? Uh, there's all this stuff out there in the air. I mean, I come across it literally at work, but like, hey, don't do this when you're at home because otherwise you'll mess with your work-life balance. Um, how do you think we should approach that? One of the institutions that's probably gotten most into the business of giving us good life and moral advice these days is our employer. I think a lot of people are not attending church anymore, not necessarily part of like, you know, leading Girl Scout troops or doing things that might have discussions of common good and what where we're supposed to find meaning in life. But we get to work and we have all kinds of trainings about what it is that is characteristic of a healthy lifestyle and how to have better relationships with other people. Work has really stepped into this philosophical role. And one of the things that we want to raise a discussion about in the book is, is this advice that we're kind of absorbing from our workplaces about a good life philosophically plausible. And some of it we think is, but some of it we definitely think is not. And I think one one topic we're hoping people will have a broader conversation about is whether or not in dealing with workers who are facing nihilist problems, who are facing burnout, who are facing a loss of meaning, the right response is to say that the good life is a matter of finding the right hourly balance between how much time you spend in your formal job and how much time you spend doing other things and just measuring your good life in terms of how you're allocating your time on a spreadsheet, which just no, you know, lots of philosophers for the last 2,400 years since ancient Greece have suffered with this question about how much time should we be investing in projects that serve other people? How much time should we be trying to get money? Aristotle calls it in the politics, the getting of goods and worried about getting too addicted to the getting of goods, but also at the same time realizing contemplation is not just meant to be a performance enhancer. So it's not the case that you should like spend time cultivating your inner life so that you'll be a more efficient and less stressed out worker. It's meant to be valuable in and of itself. And also leading a fully contemplative life is not a human life. I mean, this is what Aristotle says at the end of the Nicomachean Ethics is um, the life of complete contemplation in this world seems to be a life where you don't cultivate relationships. You don't serve other people. You can't will to be a tech entrepreneur, but then also not will the means to that end of doing all the things, cultivating the skills, developing the relationships, doing the hard work that's going to get you to that goal. And so we want in the book to show how this question about understanding the philosophical basis for our goals is something that requires a whole lot more thought than just uh, having a one-off discussion with your boss about how much time you spend in workland and how much time you spend in homeland. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like I've come across that all over the place. Uh, just to give one example, the company Braintree uh, that was based here in Chicago, they've since been acquired by PayPal. But one thing I heard about the workplace there is that uh, if anyone 
like worked on something uh, after 6 p.m., there was a mechanism for getting them to stop doing that, which was that everyone else would make fun of them. Uh, that was like, the <laughs> yeah. Be, that works. Shame, like, shame is a great way to encourage moral development. Like, what are you doing? Like, get a life, man. Like, come back and do this tomorrow morning. Like, <laughs> yeah. um, It's but, funny. We don't do that with, you know, uh, People who are primary caretakers for children be like, oh well, you you know, you why are you still caring for that toddler after eight p.m. or 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 army rangers <laughs> like, oh my gosh, the army rangers have no work life balance because they've got it's a, a kind of mission and goal that they're quite committed to and invested in that just this idea of re- really simple timekeeping as a way of measuring the good life just doesn't work for so many people's jobs and so many people's lives. But then, like, do we want to say that timekeeping, like, plays no role in the question of how you balance uh, the various activities you're in? Or right? it feels like this is, like, a little bit of a yeah. tricky issue. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And one sort of further complication before even try to, like, address the, the issue, I think, is that a lot of times there are, like, coordination problems and there are problems of control, right? Like, how much control you have over your life can vary widely depending on your employer, your financial situation. So sometimes I do think, you know, together we do have to think really hard about, you know, how much time it's normal to spend in an office. Um, And you have to have those debates. One insight that comes out of that uh, that I think can help us gain some traction on some of these issues is um, thinking about the time issue in terms of your values and and the good things that you're committed to in your life. So I think uh, a lot of people experience friction when it comes to work-life balance not only because you know they're working you know 12 hours in a day although you know if you do that long enough yeah you're going to burn out just like mentally or whatever but because uh, they feel like the amount of time they should be spending on good things in their life is somehow misaligned right they're spending 12 hours at the office at the expense of spending enough time at home or you know or even uh, vice versa they're sort of not having enough time to work on projects at work that give their life an incredible amount of meaning so I think one thing that we can do, uh, you know, in, in thinking seriously about this question of work-life balance or uh, about burnout is uh, to start thinking really seriously about whether we're allotting the right amount of time to the good things in our lives and not just in any particular moment, right? Knowing that like our lives have a particular shape. This is another thing that Aristotle does really well. He says, you know, happiness is not something that you think about just moment to moment. It's something that you think about over the course of your whole life. Uh, so it could very well be that Gosh, the next six months, I'm going to go, you know, do a startup. Sorry, make a startup, create a startup. It's going to require an insane amount of of time, right? I'm going to have to spend all of this time there, but it's going to give my life all this meaning. Okay. As long as I have planned out, you know, the flourishing of my family and the flourishing of myself and this business in a way that sort of makes sense within the structure of my life. And as long as I think, you know, the values that I have are aligned in the right sort of way. Some of these issues, some of these problems become more tractable. I'm not going to feel that even psychological tension that often accompanies problems that people have when they feel misaligned. So the, it seems like maybe what we want to say about this is that um, allotting time is something that we have to do and something we have to think about. But it's not like this exact number is the correct amount of time for every case, no matter who the person is and no matter what they're doing. Rather, like there are different activities that different people engage in. Some activities require more time than others. And really what we want to look at is, are the activities that are important to us kind of like interfering with each other? And if they are, like we want to twiddle some knobs in like how we're doing them so they stop interfering with each other. And one possible knob we can twiddle is how much time we're allotting to each. But it's always going to be like a very highly contextual thing how you decide to do that. 
Well, there's that question. And then there's also the deeper philosophical question of trying to articulate what your goals are and then asking the Socrates question of, are there good reasons behind these goals? And a lot of goals, they just suggest themselves to us as being the things that we ought to aim for. I ought to aim for being this particular kind of parent uh, using this parenting style that's quite popular in 2020. Or I ought to aim to be this particular kind of entrepreneur. And entrepreneurs, if they're doing well, just work 100 hours a week. And I ought to aim to get <laughs> offers from these philosophy departments as a philosophy professor. Exactly. And sometimes, one, sometimes caring about reality means that's true. You are not going to win a Nobel Prize or become a tenured professor or become dad of the year or mom of the year if you don't put in the hours. Um, it's not the kind of thing that other people can do for you. And one of the things we talk about a lot in the third chapter of the book is developing both agency and responsibility alongside each other and realizing some things you have to do the hard work and own it if, in fact, it was a pointless goal or a goal that wasn't going to help your life be meaningful. But also, a lot of times there are goals that are just floating around out there that seem like they're really wonderful and we can get addicted to and try to make our own goals, but we, the philosophical connection is not there. And you honestly took a big risk in pouring so much of your time and resources into going after that. And one of the things philosophy really helps us with is finding the goals that actually have serious foundations under them. And being willing to question the goals that we're just hearing from other people that, in fact, are kind of dumb. Right. And I feel like this is something that's often neglected, the why question. I mean, uh, so we have these life projects that are sort of handed to us in some cases. Maybe our parents have ideas that we should be doing X, Y, Z. And, hey, look, I'm not knocking parents. Like, sometimes they're right and we should be doing X, Y, Z. But we often skip over the part where we think, like, wait a minute. Wait, why do I need to do X, Y, Z? And, like... Is there something else that would be just as good at doing the same thing? And like, maybe there isn't, but I should at least think about it, perhaps. And one of the things that I think uh, is most attractive about the virtue ethics tradition is that it just illustrates that we can have those arguments, right? Like you look at Socrates, you look at you know the Platonic dialogues uh, or a lot of Aristotle – He's literally just arguing like you should not value, you know, wealth as much as you value the state of your soul. Now, that's not to say that uh, we should even just adopt the goals that Socrates has or that Aristotle has. But to say that those are things that are kind of in the space of reasons or very broadly construed, that we can have an argument about that or just journal about it for ourselves and think really seriously about. To me, that's a really liberating idea. Um, you know, I'm the kind of person that Megan was describing a second ago. I sometimes just absorb a goal from the culture or like the people around me. I think like they all want this thing. I guess I want that thing too. And to be able to like reflectively step back and to engage in this kind of dialogue with somebody and say, well, wait a second, like why do you want that thing? And do you see how that's compatible or not with this other thing that you say you want? To me, that's incredibly liberating, um, especially because then at the end of the day, it, it gives us more agency and sort of control over the structure of our lives rather than just, you know, giving us advice that's like, well, OK, so what you need to do is, you know, meditate five minutes a day and OK, then all your problems are done. That's also, you know, it's often good advice. We often do need to like meditate five minutes a day. Um, but it's, it's for me, it's really liberating to, to think about, you know, arguing and, and reasoning about this stuff. In case anyone wants to do more of a deep dive on virtue ethics, I thought I, this might be a good place to mention that episode 57 of Lucidations with Julie Annis um, examines the virtue ethics tradition in philosophy going back to ancient Greece. Some of this advice going back to Socrates and Aristotle, maybe to listeners sounds just like Captain Obvious, like, of course, care more for the state of your soul than care more about money. I've seen that meme on the internet. I've posted it. But 
it's not obvious. Like it's quite practical and sometimes quite demanding advice to be able to hit pause and say, you know, what is this option doing to me? And a lot of philosophical advice out there right now, especially moral advice, actually encourages you to do the opposite. So one thing we talk about in the second chapter of the book, and we talk about a lot with the students in our class, is this moral program called effective altruism, which is um, it's a really serious, extremely interesting philosophical position right now that argues gaining a lot of ground outside philosophy too. I think oh, with like econ- economists and uh, like even some AI people. It's like really it's interesting. It's huge. It's and it's kind of cool because it shows how philosophy can become a way of life for a lot of people who think like this is an idea that's an answer to this question about what my moral obligations are. The basic idea behind effective altruism is that if you're a person who has some options when it comes to employment and education, you should try to find those options in your life which will enable you to optimize the moral impact that you have in the world measured as a function of how much suffering you can alleviate. And then that sounds a really highfalutin. The, the practical example is Paul, say, is a really smart undergrad, and he goes to a school like Notre Dame, and he has the option of going into philosophy graduate school or going into the priesthood, or going uh, into a hedge fund and making as much money as possible and then committing to donate 90% of his income to the Against Malaria Foundation, which for $3,700 believes they can save someone's life from preventable disease. Effective altruists are going to say, Paul should not search his soul about whether he's being called into the priesthood or called to a deeper study of Aristotle. Instead, he should Google how much money it costs to save a human life right now and realize that with his talents, he should be earning and giving. You should find that the answer to your moral question should be based on these facts that are largely outside of you and the particulars of your circumstances and your character. And and that's a powerful argument, one that virtue ethicists have good reason to reject, but also should be part of this conversation right now because I think a lot of us ought to be concerned with whether we have this moral dimension to our good lives. Hmm. Yeah, so in other words, like try to optimize the variable of uh, – happiness in the entire human population. Like if the question is, what am I going to do with the next 10 years? I should try to estimate, calculate, whatever it is, use the scientific method to determine which of the options I'm considering is going to maximize the amount of happiness experienced by the entire human population. And like staying at home and raising my kids, maybe that's going to maximize happiness for me. But if you look at the population level, it's like less. So, you know, it seems to also you know, enter us into these sort of moral dilemmas. Yeah, well, yeah. And it brings out this one of the really interesting points about virtue ethics, which we also talk about a lot in the book, is how we describe the goals in moral and philosophical terms matters a lot to the reasonableness of adopting them as goals. And so, look, I could say I just described the Paul priest philosopher or hedge fund guy scenario, and that made it seem like something cold and calculating and icky about the hedge fund option. But the effective altruist will be like, what if I describe it a different way? I say, Paul, there are three roads ahead for you. And one of these roads, if you choose it, you will save lives. Like you will be um, somebody who's really importantly causally involved in saving lives, which is something that you think is unquestionably morally valuable. Shouldn't you go for it? Um, And the other two options you're going to be, you know, people will not enjoy that benefit. 
if you describe it in that terms, it seems like quite morally interesting and uh, much more significant. And one of the interesting points about virtue it, ethics it is appealing too, right? Who doesn't want to be like, I just saved 20 lives. Yeah. And so effective altruists are going to be like, doesn't matter how you describe the story that you just, just measure the cause and effect. And virtue ethicists are going to say, oh, no, how you describe Paul's intentions in picking a life um, and what he is morally aiming for and whether he understands that. I'm sorry to pick up Paul's no, sitting right yeah, next to yeah, me for this yeah, podcast. Yeah, yeah. Well, like. That's everything. That controls so much of what is important about morality and the good life. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll just add here, um, these are questions that our students are thinking about constantly. And one of the things that we really try to do in the book and in the class that the book is based on is, you know, connect with students philosophically where they're at. The things that we care about, you know, effective altruism versus virtue ethics or, you know, whether we've got this obligation to maximize happiness in the world, these are really abstract philosophical issues and they're things that as philosophers we care a ton about. Those are already showing up in the lives of our students. It's just that they show up in terms of this question like should I go into investment banking or should I, you know, uh, do volunteer work and then become a high school teacher in uh, an impoverished school? You know, once we sort of realize that and once we could bring those philosophical issues into that space and once our students started making those connections, for us that made all the difference. Like suddenly, you know, they were the ones who were like, well, wait a second. This is just uh, really like opened up and enlivened uh, philosophy in the relationships that really matter to us. And we don't always win these arguments with our students. I meant to tell Paul when we were walking over here this morning, I got an email from a student we had in uh, 2017 over the past week. And he was like, ah, he had been reading the book and he's like, I just wanted you to, you to know, like you know, when I was a student there, I was really committed to doing like volunteer work right after I graduated. And I switched gears and decided to become a management consultant and I made a ton of money and now I'm giving it all to these charities <laughs> that I was going to volunteer with. And he's like, and it's working. He's like, I'm making such a difference in the world. And I was like... You win effective altruist. We tried so hard to convince it, but but we're so proud because this guy, I mean, this guy knows the philosophical backing for his financial decisions right now. It's not the one that we would have recommended to him, but it's it's so cool that he's thinking like five years later, I, I am a utilitarian. I, I've discerned this. And some people might argue that we could use maybe a little bit more of that in the finance world. Yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, forever. I, I would take... 30 utilitarian hedge fund managers over an unphilosophical hedge fund manager any day of the week. It's interesting. I feel though like maybe if I'm understanding your overall position on this right, you could consider that a win if that student arrived at the decision to do that, you know, through careful reflection and considering all the options and think about why, like, why do I want to do this? Um, and where did this desire come from? Was it just projected onto me? Uh, am I just, I just absorbed by osmosis from whoever, from the culture, from my parents, from the media? And so, like, the exact life plan that you arrive on is certainly a factor, but just as much of a factor is, like, why? Yeah, and here's maybe a way of illustrating that in the context of the class. So the final assignment that we have our students do is we have them write a philosophical apology. And, uh, you know, for the listeners uh, who may be familiar with this or maybe not, you know, philosophical apology is supposed to be a description of what you believe uh, and a description in the context of a life story and a defense of it, right? So, so it's not like you're saying you're sorry. 
Right. No, no. It's <laughs> they the, never it's, the, say it's almost right. the opposite, right? If you read like, you know, uh, Socrates' apology uh, as written by Plato, you know, he's doing the opposite. He's like, I regret nothing, right? Uh, give me the hemlock. Um, you guys should be paying yeah, me to do this. Be, yeah. Um, so this is, you know, uh, one, one reason why we think this is so important for our students is because, yeah, our goal for them is to think more philosophically about their goals. Now, we obviously want them to change those goals if they're bad goals or if they think like, yeah, look, I've reconsidered this. And uh, now it turns out Aristotle is just right about, I don't know, happiness or contemplation. Um, so we do, you know, we want them to think through and kind of make changes. But that's really our goal is to empower our students and uh, readers of the book uh, to be able to do this thing, right, to tell their life story in this really philosophically rich way uh, and in a way that that sort of opens it up to this kind of reflection um, because we think like that is going to improve your life. And that's the sense in which, you know, the book is really uh, what we describe as deep self-help, right? Uh, it is supposed to be a, a way of reflecting on and improving your life. So this is another thing worth turning to, I think. Um, one thing that's very unusual about your book is – it's hard to classify what it is exactly. Like, is it a virtue ethics book? Well, it looks pretty different from like a lot of the books that come out under that heading, you know, the Oxford University Press books or whatever. Uh, it also like in various respects sort of um, reminds me of a textbook and that there's sort of like exercises in it that you have to do. But it's also not like this is the teacher's edition and this is literally supposed to be used in a class. It's more like it's meant to kind of evoke that. And then uh, you also mentioned this apology literary genre. Uh, which uh, often the book sort of like periodically takes a break from what it's talking about for one of you to do one of these apologies. It's not like sort of explicitly part of the book, but you get the feeling reading it that like, hey, you know, you could try doing this like if you want. Um, so like uh, what exactly is the book? Like is it a book <laughs> teaching you how to live? Is it like a documentation of like what your class was for historians of philosophy classes or like what's going on? I can, I can kick it off. Uh, it's a great question. Well, a common bit of feedback we've been getting from a lot of readers is like, I usually hate philosophy, but I like this. <laughs> uh, which I'll take as a oh, compliment. But it got, That's our, totally my goal. Our course got going about seven years ago. Paul's a PhD student in Notre Dame at the time, and I was a recently tenured philosophy professor. And we've been kind of batting around this thought experiment for a while. Aristotle, in the second chapter of the Nicomachean Ethics, says we study this subject, the philosophy of happiness, not so that we can know what virtue is, not so we can know like philosophy definitions of happiness terms, but so that we can be happy. Otherwise, there's no benefit of it. And we were feeling like pretty crazy at the time. And we were interacting with lots of students who we loved and we loved talking about philosophy with, but realized we were wasting a lot of our class time with them mm. and just had this thought. This class is a requirement, right? Or is that not right? It fulfills a requirement, but there are other classes. That oh, so it's one of several to fulfill it's a requirement. It's the most popular way to fulfill the requirement. Slick. Uh, I know. That's how we roll. Yeah, yeah. Um, with nice good work. reason, though, because we we decided we want to build the course around this idea that philosophy is an activity that you do to try to get closer to this goal of eudaimonia or happiness. And, you know, we're true believers. Like, we're really – we're not there yet. We're all – we're pretty young and we make a lot of mistakes. Yeah. But, um, but well, we really – I certainly found this as a teacher, like, <sighs> teaching a class – even one that is one of several that fulfill a requirement versus just teaching one that doesn't fulfill like anything, basically. Yeah. It's much easier to do the latter uh, yeah. because people all chose to be there, whereas yeah. otherwise you have sort of at least a partially captive audience. And they're, it, like maybe some of whom are even like a little resentful that they're in the room. I feel like that just like makes it all the more difficult to like, we, you know, we want everyone to walk out of the semester happy yeah. <laughs> to achieve that. 
Are students like, you know, uh, they're there at varying levels of excitement about having to learn philosophy as freshmen, but they're all, and this was true the very first, we still have a picture of the very first day of the first class that we taught. This was true that day with that group. As soon as we got up there and we're like, look, the goal for this class is to read Plato and Aristotle and Aquinas and Anscombe and Murdoch and try to figure out what your plan is going to be for having a meaningful life. Like that resonates with 18 year olds. And the reason the book came about was that the class took off really fast. I don't think we were anticipating how how much of a cultural thing around Notre Dame the class was going to be really fast. But the Chronicle of Higher Ed did a piece about just like how kind of in your face the our philosophy class was and how students were really responding to it. And we got reached out to by our editor, Penguin Ginny, who was basically like, you realize, I remember she was talking to me on the phone. She's like, you realize adults have these problems too. And like, there are a lot of people who would like to take such a class and never got to do it in college and now are going through a midlife crisis. I mean, just look at the internet, go on YouTube oh and have, you know, it's like, here are 50 Jordan Peterson videos you can watch about, you know, how to make your life better. Yeah. You know? <laughs> we, we're trying to build out the market and give people maybe some real money to drive out the counterfeit philosophy money. But there is this hunger that for, for philosophical conversation and investigation that for better, for worse, academic philosophy, I know you got a lot of academic philosophers listen to this podcast. Academic philosophy has not done nearly enough to try to do that work of translating um, what we study to the care for the souls of people now. And, and something also Paul and I really believe in. That was also a disconnect I found when I was uh, studying academic philosophy. Was that like, you know, I was in this because like I felt like it was like helping me live. Uh, but I didn't necessarily, I don't know, I felt like there was a little bit out of sync with uh, some of my colleagues in terms of like why we were here. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. Uh, I've always seen philosophy, although I haven't always described it in these terms, but I've always seen philosophy as a way of life. And this is, you know, now uh, something that we've been working on with the class and with a lot of philosophers across the country, kind of coming up with uh, more concrete ways of thinking about what that means, right? What is it for philosophy to serve this role, to be a way of life? But I think, you know, on the structure of the book question too, one of my goals uh, in putting the ideas that we talk about in this class and really like kind of the structure, the form of the class uh, into a book is, you know, I would just go back to these conversations that I was having uh, with my mom, <laughs> with like people that I would meet like yeah, just like in public on the plane or with friends that are not academics and um, worry a lot about, again, these kinds of issues having to do with their career or their family life or work or whatever it might be. And thinking like, okay, how could we take this incredible conversation that we get to have with our students over the course of a semester, how can we take that and put it into a format so that they could enter into that conversation as well? Just to describe a little bit about uh, the structure of the book, each of the chapters takes on a different virtue broadly construed. So things like generosity or things like work or things like responsibility or faith. Uh, and then explores, you know, what have philosophers had to say about this topic? Um, what are kind of the most interesting for us debates that they've had? And then each of the chapters, you know, incorporate some sort of personal story, either from Megan or from me, um, that we think of as an apology that we're giving. And then ends with this exercise, right? It's like, here's 10 questions that you could ask your friend. 
And I'd say, you know, one of the things to me that indicated, okay, we've kind of achieved to some degree what we were aiming for is as soon as my mom got a copy of this book, she got a copy for her friend and said like, okay, we're working through this together. Like, you know, at the end of every chapter, we sit down and we go through this exercise and then we journal a bit and we're writing our apology. And I thought like that is exactly what I'm hoping people will do with this. Um, And so in a way, you know, they're walking through the same process that our students are walking through and kind of building out this community of dialogue uh, that I think we found really fruitful at Notre Dame. One of the things that's been really amazing about our class is the vulnerability. It's pretty authentic, but I mean, Paul and I share with students the philosophy that we're struggling with as we try to figure out what's good in our lives. And certainly our students, once they realize that that invitation's on the table to actually ask the questions that they have about religion, about morality, about family life, they they realize that they really have a lot on their a lot of philosophical thoughts on their minds and in the book it's one thing to lecture students like live and examine life or like you know use your money for moral ends but we and our family members are very tolerant of this drag our own lives in to show that kind of vulnerability like you know talk about financial struggles our families have had and how we manage this really fraught embarrassing emotional conversation about how to use money talk about relationships between parents and children and the philosophical puzzles that they've raised in our lives and how we're wrestling with them. And, you know, it's uh, showing that level of trust in philosophy to the point where we're willing to talk about things that people, frankly, have a hard time talking about right now is part of taking the magic of what happens in our class when it's going really well and hopefully showing people that this is still possible in their lives. Yeah, Yalza's autobiographies are really compelling. It's like a total, like, total page turner uh, in that regard. And, like, I think we don't think about this um, very much. We just assume that, like, well, whatever. You know, we're not action heroes. We're not firemen. We're not whatever. Our lives are boring. I, I wake up. I go to work. But, like, you sit back and try to narrate, you know, your life to somebody. Yeah, you often find it's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot more action and adventure in it than oh, you thought yeah. there was. I mean, even in the the chapter on love, right, uh, I think one of the great insights, and and this is something that was really fun, you know, in, in writing the book, Megan would come in and say like, hey, I've been reading this, you know, Iris Murdoch and this literature on love. Let's, let's talk about that. Uh, and so even that dialogue for me was one of the most rich and engaging parts of writing the book. But in that chapter, you know, an idea that we develop is this idea that our inner lives have this richness to them and that other people have inner lives too. And part of loving people is inviting them into the richness of your inner life and then attempting as insofar as it's possible to enter into their inner life, right? To sort of share in their desires or their dreams and to allow that to make yourself intelligible to them and allow them to become more intelligible to you. I think that's totally part of philosophy. Uh, And we see that, you know, through the history of philosophy, there are a lot of people that share these kinds of details. But I think, like, it's something that uh, if we saw more of it in philosophy, uh, and we do, uh, sorry, and I I say this. We don't learn that in grad school, though. (laughs) Yeah, we don't learn about that in grad school. But I think it's, yeah, it is an important sort of part of, of doing philosophy or can be. So listeners might not necessarily know, but I happen to have inside information that the name of your course is God and the Good Life. The word God is strangely absent from the name of this book, although you do discuss religious faith in it. So have we been trying to trick uh, Elucidation's listeners this entire episode and convert them all to be Catholics? Oh my gosh, it might be weird. Like the Elucidation listeners already ordered the book on Amazon and it arrives and they're like, oh my gosh, there's so much religion. It's not even, there's lots of discussion about religion broadly in the second half of the book, but then there's also a lot of discussion of Christianity and Catholicism. And you might be like, oh no, I've been tricked. I thought this was philosophy. 
I mean, one of the things, and, and Paul and I talk about this question all the time, I'll let Paul speak for himself, but one of the things that I love about teaching philosophy to our undergraduates at Notre Dame, but also including some of this philosophy of religion in the book, is the opportunity to remind people of all backgrounds or people who are just not interested in religion or sick of hearing about religion, that questions about why people develop faith and why they join or leave a religious tradition and how you deal with thinking about the really big existential puzzles like why are we here and why do we die? These are messy questions. They're questions where philosophy opens up possible answers, but it also makes answers that we might have been comfortable with feel really weird and strange. And one of the great reasons to study philosophy is if you find yourself like bored or tired or traumatized about trying to talk with people about religion, philosophy can give us options and shared language for trying to talk about how it's playing this role in our lives right now that's much more complicated than what often gets reflected back to us by culture and the media. And so one of the things we try to convince our students of and we try to show in the book is trying to add or subtract religion from your idea of a good life is uh, tricky, but it also doesn't have to be miserable. It can be kind of fun and joyful. And one of the my favorite parts of the book is in the chapter on where we pivot to these kind of moral and day-to-day good life questions to more religious and existential questions. We talk about Stephen Colbert, who you might not think is a very thoughtful person um, on religious questions, but it is, and he's quite joyful, and he uh, is willing to ask hard questions about the problem of evil, and uh, is maybe an example of how we can have fun having these debates again. Yeah, early in the book, uh, we talk a lot about the importance of dialogue and and learning to ask questions, Uh, and that's a huge part of the culture of the class as well. We have a very optimistic view, but it's one that's really grounded in our experience with our students and with people that you know we've talked to over the course of writing this book, that it's possible to dialogue, especially with people that believe things that are very different to you. And I think for me, this comes out most when we talk about religion in the context of the course. Um, so I sometimes forget that you, know, you can do philosophy about religion with people who don't share your own views, right? I sometimes get locked into this idea or, you know, certainly you know, felt like this in grad school sometimes. Look, you know, if I'm a theist, I've got to come up with all these arguments for God's existence and like we're going to then fight with the atheist and, you know, uh, OK, that's something you can do. That's fine. And maybe it's a good, helpful exercise. I don't know. But some of the best conversations I've had with students and honestly, some of the best conversations I've had with like strangers on the Internet who have engaged with this book have been conversations with uh, atheists or agnostics who say, look, So much of the kind of philosophical picture coming out of Aristotle resonates with me, but my value when it comes to religion is the polar opposite of yours, right? Let's talk about that. Like that's puzzling. That's confusing. Maybe we're both really optimistic about finding meaning in life, but literally for me, that meaning is in the authentic recognition that like there is no God, right? And this is all there is. Uh, And I can embrace that as an absurdity in some sort of existential way. Um, So again, you know, as an example here, that dialogue for me, like that that's still possible and that philosophy can open that up. I mean, it it almost sounds trite in like 2022, like given just the polarization, the divisions, the the kind of rhetoric that you see sort of on the public facing side of the Internet. But for me, I mean, that's at the core of why I'm so hopeful in writing this book and in thinking about the way philosophy can help us build community, engage with other people. 
uh, I think, you know, just having that way in to a conversation with somebody who disagrees with you about something as big as, uh, you know, this religious question. For me, that's like the real reward if you put in the time with philosophy. Megan Sullivan and Paul Blaschko. Thanks so much for coming on and um, uh, giving us uh, several object lessons and how to appreciate the weirdness in things. Thank you. This is fantastic. Yeah, this is so much fun. The Elucidations blog has moved. We are now located at elucidations.now.sh. On the blog, you can find our full back catalog of previous episodes. And if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out on Twitter at, at elucidationspod. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.